This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Denver Nuggets last night ended up losing their game in the battle, a heavyweight fight between the last two league MVPs, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid. The Sixers get the better of the Nuggets, one twenty-six to one twenty-one. Most uh, entertaining to get these. I mean, Jokic had twenty-five points. Both teams played well. Nineteen boards. Embiid had forty-one points, ten boards, and get this: no the, ten assists. Ten assists. Pardon me. The plus-minus for these guys: Jokic plus one, Embiid zero. Yeah. I mean, that is as in a game as, that was. Decided by five Much points. of a, a standstill as you can possibly have in a duel. Joining us now to talk about it uh, is our friend Ryan Blackburn, the lead Nuggets writer for Mile High Sports. Of course, you can also catch out the uh, pair of podcasts, Pickaxe and Roll and the Alley podcast that he hosts. NBA Blackburn is the handle. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Uh, I guess the first question right off, you heard Sandy. Do you agree with, with Sandy that win or lose, this was one of the Nuggets' better performances of the year? I'm not sure if I fully agree. I think that there yeah, are a lot of- Just to clarify, I'm saying from an entertainment standpoint to watch that game, I thought it was the best Nuggets game of the year in that both teams played well. You have two heavyweights, both played at or very close to the top of their respective games, especially offensively. I just thought it was a joy to watch, and I think even the losing coach felt much the same way. That yeah, his team I, got that, out executed, but they didn't lose because they didn't have enough energy. Oh, there's there's no doubt there. I think I think both of these teams took this game very seriously. Or they did. Yeah. The vast majority of the players took it very very seriously, and I thought that they brought the requisite energy and effort that you would hope for in a situation like this. Uh, I think there were playoff rotations being played on both sides yeah. or at least very close to it where yeah. you see the minute totals for these guys right. Tyrese Maxey at 43 uh Tobias Harris had a bunch of minutes Aaron Gordon played 39 Jokic played 38 Murray played 38 so yep. like these these were clearly like a, a game that both coaches wanted to get that both teams wanted to get you could see the intensity and only one of them could win exactly that's uh, pretty much how I, how I saw it no I I, you know, I, I did in the first half find myself uh, astonished at how many points were being scored, but I didn't think it was bad defense. You know, it, sometimes when you have a high score, you say, uh, well, it's more bad defense and great offense. I thought it was just great offense. I mean, people were making very, very tough shots on both ends and, uh, you know, the top, Two guys on each team uh, were pretty much in form. Uh, maybe Phillies were were a little more productive, but I thought in in many ways the big difference was uh, Harris was just a little bit better uh, than Porter was, and uh, Gordon and Batum kind of canceled out. Um, there wasn't much difference in the bench play. I thought from the bench, I'll ask you the question. Um, I thought especially Jackson and Brown were terrific in limited minutes. It's no doubt that the benches in the in the first half, especially, especially I think Denver got a pretty impressive effort from Christian Brown and from Peyton Watson. Yep. Both of those guys really showed out. Uh, it was nice to see them show up in a, in a situation like this where you didn't know exactly what you were going to get after they had played pretty poorly. 
in the previous couple of home games, but they showed up and, and they, they showed up in a big way. Uh, to your early points about the, the stars kind of canceling each other out, I, I think that Murray deserves some criticism here for sure. Um, the fourth quarter that he had, he played great in the first half. I want yeah, to make he, that he was tremendous, especially the shot that closed the half. I mean, that was almost uh, a Jokic type of shot from three point land that you, you think it's a 10% chance of going in and he made it. So, yeah, uh, you're right. The second half wasn't quite as good. Why do you think that was? So, I, I, have, I have a couple of theories, but there, there are two reasons, in my opinion, why this game fell apart. The first one is that the coaching decisions made with the defensive schemes that the Nuggets were playing in the third quarter and fourth quarter were odd. They were poor choices, in my opinion, and the Nuggets did not have the capacity to play them. At, at the level that they were supposed to in a in a regular season environment. If Denver had plenty of time to prepare that way and execute, then they would have been better. They did not. They tried something gimmicky, and I thought it was bad. Uh, with the way that they were doubling Embiid at the top of the key, uh, that was just not the way that they were supposed to handle that. But the other one was that Murray was bad in the fourth quarter, just, just flat-out bad, and they needed him to be better. Flat out, you, you in a game like this where both sides, the margins are so thin, everybody's looking at the Jokic and Embiid battle, and then Maxi and Harris coming in the in the fourth quarter, and yeah. Tobias Harris, oh, to your yeah. point, has some great possessions. Oh. Murray, like Murray yeah. in the fourth quarter, went 0 of 4, two turnovers and one assist, and yep. it's not good enough. Like yep. you, you have to I play, agree. you have to deliver uh, in that situation, and I thought that Patrick Beverly in particular got into his skin, and bothered him. And that just can't happen. Have you seen, Ryan, with, with Jamal Murray's play? Because I have found it kind of fascinating. I, I'm not going to say that, uh, I think it's complicated with Murray. I'm not going to say he's icing Michael Porter Jr. out. I don't believe he is. But I do believe at times that, that Murray has been trying, as, uh, uh, as you know, George Carl would say, a little bit of hero ball at yeah. times, and, and, and passing up the easy opportunities, many of those, to Porter, how much of this do you believe? Because we know that Murray doesn't necessarily play like that. We've seen his playoff run. We know that he's he's a, a great distributor and can do that as well. But we also know that to get the contract extension that he may be eligible for as soon as after the season, uh, you can get a significant bump, 30% bump. If you end up with the uh, you can all-NBA team, you can make a first, second, or third, that that gives you an opportunity to get a raise. And, of course, an all-star appearance helps. Do you believe that, that the forthcoming contract extension for Jamal Murray, which is coming and will be a max, that Murray's idea to max that out as much as possible has factored into his play and trickled onto the court this season. I don't. Uh, I think that's a narrative that's come from a lot of other people. And I think there are some folks that are focused on that as a potential reason why he didn't accept the contract. I think he bet on himself and he wanted to play well and he's played fine he, he's played like, like to the point about his numbers like they are like he's averaging i think a career high in assists yeah. he's averaging uh some, some like a decent number of points but it's just not the level that i think that it's going to earn him either all-star or all nba consideration agree so if we if we kind of work our way forwards with that there's nothing that he could be doing and that i think that he has been doing with porter specifically that that would consider him like hey he's sometimes he makes the wrong read 
sometimes he makes yeah. the wrong decision. And I think that lately uh, there have been a couple of times where I've, I've liked the way that he has played. I think the previous two games he played really, really well. And, and he was focused in on the assists. I think in this last game, he had eight assists at the or seven assists at the end of the first half. He did. And finished the game with 10, I think. Yep. Uh, and just shot poorly in the second half. And I don't think that it was any particular reason as to, man, is this a subliminal reason for why he's shooting badly or why he's, why Michael Porter's not playing well? I just don't think that they have a lot of chemistry playing next to each other. And there are times where he looks for Porter and there are times where he doesn't. And I don't think that there's any reasoning behind it. There wouldn't seem to be. And certainly from a personal point of view, uh, you, you've uh, written and talked about it. Uh, I, I think the two got closer in spending that year, a couple of years ago, both rehabbing mm-hmm. and both hearing um, sometimes loudly, sometimes not so loudly. Uh, that they should be making more progress than they were making. So they were able to commiserate with with each other, and I think their personal relationship is uh, probably quite a bit closer than it might have been three years ago, let's say. Uh, I think that's fine. Uh, I, I, I think Porter's night-in, night-out fit with, with the other four and how they involve him or uh, maybe – don't always involve him fully at at times. Uh, that's still one of those works in progress. Uh, but it's I, I tell you from an offensive point of view, it's awful hard to argue with seven guys in double figures last night for Denver. Yeah, uh, so, the offense the, wasn't the issue, the, as you're you pointed. Exactly out. right. The offense was out. like now. Now they scored seventeen points in the fourth. Yeah, quarter. but they scored one hundred four the first three. Yeah, <laughs> you're not going to do yeah, that. Every seven, week. 17 points in the fourth quarter, and I point out the biggest reason why. Denver didn't execute in the fourth quarter. Right. Jokic had a couple open threes. Yep. Porter had an him. open three. KCP yep. had an open three. And then Murray made a bunch of mistakes. And that's, like, I think if you're laying the, the blame at the feet of anybody, it's probably Murray. But then you also, I think, have to give a big old, a big old criticism to the coaching staff and why they decided to change up their defensive schemes on Embiid as much as they did because yeah. it put Denver in a hole defensively that they just could not dig out of. Yeah, I think that is one of the things that's interesting because, you know, as we talked about it, you know, 78 each at halftime and then each team went 43 points for the Nuggets and 48. Uh, the defense has tightened up, and you're right. It, it, that was where the Nuggets seemed to slip up. Uh, we know that Philadelphia is one of the league's elite teams, and Embiid is obviously an elite player. For the Nuggets defensively, how, how much of that, when you talk about the coaching, was this sort of uh, a blip? Was this an anomaly? Was this sort of a misread of a certain uh, uh, offense from the Philly side? Or do you see something systemic that when the Nuggets face certain teams that have the, this length and capability that they might not have the personnel they need or understand the way they want to tackle it yet? Well, so far they haven't been able to stop and beat. Like that's that might be just one guy that they can't. I was like, stop. Eh, welcome they, to the club. Yeah. I mean, the whole league's yeah. having that problem, but yeah. and so he, it, he's it, averaging thirty-five after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they are only six points off of his average right. after a fashion. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that that's probably one. Uh, I think that the Tobias Harris posting up in the fourth quarter was pretty indicative of Denver's lack of size on the second unit. Where here's the biggest issue. They wanted to put Peyton Watson on Tyrese Maxey and slow him down, and they did. Like Peyton Watson did a great job when he was on Tyrese Maxey. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that Christian Brown is defending Tobias Harris 
and Christian and Brown is not big cover. enough. Yeah, not big enough cover. to guard Tobias Harris, and Denver has to have the personnel in order to do that. But the problem is that when you play Jamal Murray and Reggie Jackson together, there's only one guy that you can really trust for that situation. So I'm, I'm I think that like I've talked about in this program before, I need Den- I think Denver needs another front court body. It doesn't have to be a center either. Like it could have been a guy who's about six foot eight, six foot nine, right in that Tobias Harris mold. And you just have somebody else who's competent, who can give you some extra uh, gusto on, on that side. And like, I think about a guy like Gordon Hayward, by the way, who mm-hmm. there have been reports that he could be bought out by the Charlotte Hornets. He'd be one of the best buyout players in the entire NBA. In, As NBA a bench history. guy. Yeah. In, imagine adding Gordon Hayward to this bench. Imagine adding somebody like that who can actually connect the bench a little bit more, give them some scoring punch, help out Murray in that situation, but also be competent enough defensively and know what to do. He's not just going to give up size to a guy like Tobias Harris like that. There is, there's something out there for Denver that they could try to do before the trade deadline that will help them in some of these matchups. Uh, that, that could be one of them. Do you think it's more likely to be something at the trade? The trade deadline, by the way, February 8th, so closing fast. Yeah. Or do you think that they're one of the teams that, obviously, the defending champs, are probably going to expect to look at the buyout market and, and point out that they'd be a destination for those kind of players? Do you think they'll be active in one and not the other? Probably more likely to be the buyout market, but they would have to create a roster space if they decided to go that direction. It's funny, Justin Holiday could have been another option for yesterday. Um, Julian Strother's been out. So yeah, Denver does have some other wings, yeah. some wings that they can go to, guard-sized wings or whatnot. But they don't really have a forward. They don't really have a front court guy. And I don't think that guy is coming down the pipeline anytime soon from the current roster. So you probably need somebody on the outside. And I think that the easiest way to do that is to wait for the buyout market. But, hey, guys like P.J. Tucker, guys like Gordon Hayward, guys like – uh, I don't know, pick a, pick a body. Otto Porter, maybe, if he gets bought out by the, the Raptors as they sort of fall into, like, they, yeah. they just trade their Pascal Siakam. Like, it's very possible yes. they decide to go a different direction. So uh, I think that there are going to be guys that become available, and the Nuggets have to be on the lookout. He is Ryan Blackburn. Make sure you give him a follow on social at NBA Blackburn. Check out the uh, the Pickaxe Roll podcast, the, the Alley Oop podcast, and of course, everything you push together at MyLifeSports.com. If you grab the My Life Sports app, you'll get all of it in one spot. Uh, it be an interesting week. Of course, now we know that they'll play the Celtics the rest of this week in another national game. I presume they'll get up for that too. And perhaps uh, you're right. That particular bit of an Achilles heel may be on display, and perhaps it gets the Nuggets a little more motivated to uh, start poking that market. As we know, it's now starting to heat up with the Pascal Siakam, Bruce Brown deal that happened today. So follow Ryan for the latest. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. All right. Good talking to, to Ryan Blackburn, of course. And yeah, that 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 move, uh, Bruce Brown today gets uh, dealt in that trade. There's going to be movement because very clearly in the NBA, there is a, and it is, it is separating, I think to an extent, more quickly than you'd think. The, the real contenders, if you were to say what teams can win a title. I think you look at three in the East, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. I think in the West right now, I know that the the Nuggets are behind the Thunder and the Timberwolves. I'm not convinced that the league at this point looks at the Timberwolves and the Thunder as contenders. I do think they look at the Nuggets. 
I do think for various reasons, maybe teams look at the Clippers. And I get that the Suns yeah. have the talent, yeah. uh, but the Suns haven't been able to materialize it. And injuries are a problem. But, I mean, you're talking yeah. about, realistically, four to six teams that can win the title. And even that's a stretch. It's separating oh, out quickly. I think that's a stretch. I, I, I think, I think it's got, really four. I, I think it's closer to four than six. I think it's the Celtics, Bucks, Sixers, and Nuggets. And I, I think Indiana made a deal today involving a guy who has been on a championship team in Siakam mm-hmm. and it is a terrific player uh, who was toiling more or less in obscurity up in Toronto on a team that isn't very good. I mean, Toronto's got the same record as Memphis has, 15 and 25. So Toronto's not going anywhere. Toronto's not even going to be in the play-in tournament. So they, they're they taking a different path. That they're in more of a rebuild mode. So they trade Siakam. I, I think overall, long-term, decent trade for Toronto. But I think short-term, big trade for Indiana. And I think Indiana made that trade thinking, you know what? We can go along. We might even be able in the East to stay out of the play-in tournament. But we're not really a contender for much of anything. Maybe we win Do you think, if we get an upset. But right now they'd be playing Philadelphia. I kind in of the feel first like round, Bruce and Brown. They, they, they wouldn't be expected to win. But you, you, if you're Indiana and adding Siakam now, maybe you think, okay, we vault Miami. Yep. We vault Cleveland. We may not quite yet be where Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia are, but we're a lot closer than we were 24 hours I think ago. that it's interesting, too, that Bruce Brown, of course, if, if Toronto is in a rebuilding phase, adding him doesn't make a lot of sense. It feels like perhaps Bruce Brown might be on the move Oh, again. I think so. And, I, and they're so, not done making moves. No. Masai is a wheeler dealer. Yes. We, all, we all know that. He's not done with just this uh, one particular trade. And I understand New Orleans was involved tangentially as a third team, but uh, uh, the big uh, players involved in the deal uh, play for uh, Toronto and uh, Indiana, but those are uh, two Eastern Conference teams. Uh, Minnesota doesn't need to make a deal. Um, Oklahoma City, I think, looks at what it's got right now, and they're fine with it. Well, we'll keep that in mind as we but go. But the Clippers, forward. I agree, I, and the Nuggets. The Nuggets, it. number one. The Clippers, number yeah, two. I think at the moment, that's probably it. Of course, I want to remind you that Superbook Sports were changing the game, win some money. This season with Superbook Sports, the most trusted name in sports gambling with a direct line to Las Vegas. And now when you use the promo code MILEHIGH, you'll score up to $250 with their first bet bonus. That means the win or lose, Superbook will match your first bet up to $250 with that promo code MILEHIGH. That one's easy. So here's how you do it. Download the Superbook Sports app, enter the promo code MILEHIGH, and you'll get $250 courtesy of Superbook Sports. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It is Wednesday, and it is a wellness Wednesday. And as, as you look at the NFL's rotation, as coaches get interviewed left and right, it's fascinating to see how teams approach it. And on Wellness Wednesdays, we have an opportunity to talk with Dr. Rick Perea from uh, thinkoneforyou.org, the performance psychologist. Sandy will be able to take care of that. I will step aside. Dr. Rick Perea will join us for Wellness Wednesday next on My Life Sports.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome once again to Wellness Wednesday, our checkup from the neck up. I'm Sandy Clough alongside Dr. Rick Perea. We do this podcast weekly, and it can be heard, of course, at 5.30 on Wednesday afternoons on Mile High Sports Radio. Dr. Perea, welcome. Thank well, you. Once again, our first uh, uh, episode post-wildcard weekend. Yeah, yeah. And the playoffs are mm. underway in the National Football League, our second uh, uh, presentation of 2024, but our first since the playoffs began. And I, I want to start with the playoffs because uh, wildcard weekend doesn't always produce great games, and we really only had one. Mm. out of the six this weekend that was compelling. And that was the Rams at Detroit with the Lions pointing it out 24-23, barely hanging on. Uh, Both sides played very well all the way around. Terrific game to watch. The other five were duds. Mm. Uh, We'll get into some other stuff here, but that's the first question I want to ask you because so often in recent years, wildcard weekend has been the worst of the NFL playoff weekends. And it isn't so much predictable as it is apparently some of the so-called better teams, stronger teams playing bad football all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, I, what I think is interesting when you call them duds, I think when you look at the scoreboard, yeah, but I think there's so much context to these games. So there's so much contextualism uh, in terms of coaches and coaches' ability to reach their players and general managers. And and as you know, at this time of the year, there's a lot of movement with coaches and GMs and EVPs, executive vice presidents of teams. And I didn't think none of them were does from my perspective because what I look for is the contextualism behind the game. I wasn't one bit surprised that the the Green Bay got jumped out 27-0. One bit. Not one bit because why? Because I why knew, was that not surprising? Because I know what's going on there with McCarthy. I know even when they're winning, I know what's going on. You know, people, well, they've won twelve games each of the last three years. <laughs> right, 12 wins, but, twelve wins, twelve wins, and they have one playoff win in those three years. But here's the thing: you know, you have to know the contextualism of the relationship from the owner to the GM, and in this case, he's the same the guy. The owner and the GM, yeah. one and the same, right? And then, and then the head coach and the relationship to the players. As you know, I'm really close with DeMarcus Ware, and so I know Former cowboy. I have a pulse on that mm-hmm. Cowboy team, and he keeps me apprised. And I got to tell you, McCarthy, even when he's winning, he's not winning. And what that means is that he doesn't have the players. He doesn't have them. He doesn't have their ear. Why doesn't he have the players? He's it not, can't be X's and O's. No, it's, it's, the, it's the qualitative aspect. He, he's not an engaging guy. He's not. And, you know, some people say, well, you don't need to be an engaging guy. You know what? Football is evolving, Sandy, and it's changing. It's not what it was before where a head coach did need to know X's and O's. My assertion is this. The coordinators are the ones that put together the game plans anyway. 
offense and defense, right? The head guy has to be more of a CEO-esque. As you know, you've been down and been in the room with Adam Gase and hear him say that he's only dealing with 20% football now. And it's 80%. As a head coach. Yeah. That's what he said. It's 80% administrative. And it was flipped when he was an assistant. Absolutely. It's 80% football. And 20% the other stuff because he only had to speak once a week as a coordinator. And think about he was promoted from offensive coordinator to a head guy using a skill set that worked over here as an OC, but not necessarily transferable as a head guy. You know, leadership skills, communication skills. We there's There's what we call the big five of leadership. And one of those leadership styles is charismatic. And charisma carries so far as a head guy, as a leader, as the OC and DC. Yeah, you got to know the X's and O's. You got to put together the game plan. You have to understand the defense you're going to attack on Sunday afternoon. But these guys are getting promoted with a skill set that's over here for a job that's over here. And that's why we see so many coordinators, you know, Josh McDaniels, Matt Patricia, Adam Gase, God Adam bless Gase, him. Adam Gase is our buddy, good friends of ours. You know, yeah. but golly, we got to stop making these mistakes in these hires. And if they would just take a page out of the corporate world and understand it, you know, executive development. When Google hires someone, and Apple and and, and these top companies, they continually develop their people. They send them to trainings. It's not just about football. You know, John Elway told me one time. He said. You know why I let go of John Fox? It wasn't because of this, this, and this, and this. It was because I said, tell me why you run that defense. And he goes, well, we've had success with it. And he goes, no, tell me why you run that defense. Like, give me the, give me the meat and potatoes. Well, we've always had success. No, 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 John. I want to know why. What he wanted to hear was, okay, we run a one technique up front that demands the double team. Now our three technique is one and one with the, with the offensive tackle. The seven technique is now pressuring a double team on. He wanted the he wanted the meat and potatoes, and he couldn't give it to him. So he said, you know what? I need a guy that can talk to me, that can talk to me about the contextualism, not of just football, but why do we do that? That's what players ask for nowadays Absolutely. more and more, don't they? Absolutely. They, they don't just – reflexively obey right. all commands. Yeah. They want to know why. Yeah. These coaches today, the great coaches today have to be able to connect with their people. And I'll tell you what, I see it time and time again, and I can watch them non-verbally on the field. I can tell if somebody's an engaging personality or if they're not. I was explaining to one owner yesterday on the phone. I told him, I said, you need two psychologists in your organization. You need a clinical psychologist that can handle all the pathology. And then you need a performance psychologist, somebody that can handle how to prepare the players for success, focus, concentration, um, positivity, you know, not walking around like, you know, with your chin in the dirt until you get a, a ball thrown your way. I remember Jarvis Landry in Miami we, our strategy was always to throw him the ball in the first four or five plays because if you didn't, he'd start. He'd sulk. Yeah, he'd sulk. And that made difference in the psychology of how he played. But I told this owner that you need those two psychologists. And he said to me, that's fascinating. And I said, what? And he says, I, you know, you're putting words in my mouth. He goes, I didn't know it was a performance and a clinical, but I knew we needed that kind of help because something he is He just missing. couldn't articulate it, he but could, he knew exactly, that he needed it. Exactly. So in the future, I'm telling you, the, 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 the football world is shifting behind the scenes. 
that's going to impact it in front of the scenes. Uh, your organization is called Think One. On Wild Card Weekend, would it be fair to say that especially some of these so-called favorites might have overthought things? Yeah, I mean, for sure. the supposed number one defense in the NFL yeah. for virtually the entire year, the Cleveland Browns get 45 put on him right. by a rookie quarterback playing in his first playoff game. He almost statistically pitches a perfect game. Yeah. Perfect is 158.3 passer rating. He was at 157.2. Green Bay, Jordan Love, almost exactly yeah. the same numbers as Stroud had the day before. Mm. Not a rookie, but a first-year starting quarterback. Yep. Playing in his first playoff game. Right. Passer rating, 157.2. <laughs> yeah. They both had three touchdowns. Neither one threw a pick. One had 274 yards. The other had 272. And one guy threw one more pass than the other. They completed the same number of passes. It was almost a, a carbon copy yeah. of a virtuoso performance from the day before that was replicated uh, against teams in Cleveland and Dallas that we're supposed to feast on young, inexperienced quarterbacks. But see, it's just that, supposed to. And what it's based on is a quantitative assessment. Cleveland has the number one defense in the league. And this is what people say. Cleveland has the number one defense in the league. And that's the end of their sentence. What they should say is, Cleveland has the number one defense in the league statistically. Because that's truly what it is. When you step out on the field... The offensive guy doesn't go, oh, man, they're number one statistically. I better lay down. No, they don't care if you're one or 32. You got to play and prove it that day, which gets me to my next point that people will say, well, the best team in the league is San Francisco. The best team in the league is the Ravens. Right. It doesn't matter who the best team in the league is. Here's what matters. It matters who plays the best on that particular day they're playing. That's all that matters. We assess a qualitative experience, playing a game, human ex interaction, we assess a qualitative experience with a quantitative methodology. And Sandy, that's why it's everyone's like, oh, it's an upset. There's no upsets in the NFL. There's no upsets in the NBA. There's no upsets. If we are calling it an upset, upset it's because we have constructed in our brain the way to assess this is quantitatively. And I'm telling you right now, on any given day, one team can beat another. You look at the Dolphins putting 70 up on, on the Broncos early in the season, and then you see their their collapse in the last few weeks. When they couldn't play offense. Well, right. It, that's neck up. Not at that level. That's anyway. neck up. That's all mental. Right. That's all emotional. Okay. That's all qualitative. How come we, who had been paying attention, could see in advance – that Philadelphia on Monday night going to Tampa Bay had no business being favored. That it, the surest thing of the weekend to me was Tampa Bay beating Philadelphia. Now, yeah. I didn't think it'd be a route the way it was, but Philadelphia's psychological collapse yes. from going 10 and one to going one and five down the stretch and turned out to be one and six, including right. the playoff game, everybody could see that coming. What distinguishes that? from even the owner of the Dallas Cowboys saying, I never saw this coming. Yeah. Even though <laughs> his teams are five and thirteen in the playoffs over the last twenty eight years. Yeah. He let me let me deal with the last question first. Um 
Jerry Jones did see this coming. He just doesn't want to be honest about it. He really didn't. He did see it coming. He saw it coming in August. I had a talk with him in Canton, Ohio. He knew that there was this possibility that could happen. Um, in in terms of Tampa Bay game, you know, I, you got to you put eleven people out there on the field on defense. You put eleven out there on offense, and those are human beings. Those are human beings with emotions and feelings, and they don't always play the same every week. Their emotions are up. Their emotions are down. Sometimes, I mean, I can tell you when I prepare a team for a game. Okay, I have a, a plan. I have a Tuesday meeting with them. I have a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday I leave them alone. And then Sunday pregame, I, I, I do a little pregame, what we call a one-minute flush. Some days I have a really good one-minute flush. And some days it's not so great. So if the team psychologist has some variation in my behavior, imagine those guys having variation in their behavior, and it happens every week. And I think more and more people need to understand how important that mental side of the game is, Sandy. Philadelphia seems to understand that as an organization. I'm saying that the result Monday night was predictable, but it was also taken as part of the collapse the last seven weeks of the season, seemingly inexplicable. Do you have an explanation for it? Because they obviously, they're a progressive organization. They couldn't figure out what was wrong, how 10 and one turned into one and six. Yeah. And now they're talking about, well, the roster is not that good. May have to fire the head coach yeah. who went to the Super Bowl last year yeah. and almost won. Right. We'll talk about variation. Look at that versus this year. Right. So you can see through Seriani's nonverbal communication on the sidelines that he's a different guy this weekend than he was six weeks ago. Yes. Um, one of my college teammates, Joe Penunzio, is a coach on that team, coaches tight ends. Um, and I, he, he's given me some insight into that team. But even if I'm just on the outside looking in, you can see the different nonverbal communication on that team. The head coach is not the same, you know, cockstrong guy he was last year walking around the sidelines. You can see there's different variations in – in the relationship between the coaches on the field, on the sideline. And that's observable. So when they lose a game and you see some players talk in the media about there's a lack of communication, there's a lack of this in the locker room, you start to see how there's a breakdown. That's where leadership comes in. And um, a younger guy like him, he doesn't have those years and years of leadership experience. And, and I think that's something we should talk about if we have time today about how important leadership skills are for a head coach that are often untrained in that field. We'll indeed talk about that uh, subject. We'll talk about the hiring of Adam Peters and uh, who might very well be the next coach of the Washington Commanders, but not before we uh, reintroduce Dr. Rick Perea, the premier performance psychologist who's been working with the Broncos during their championship season of 2015, former chief psychologist for the Broncos that year. He's also worked with the Rockies, actually during their good times, and uh, the current world champion, Denver Nuggets. But most importantly, Dr. Perea helps middle and high school performers to reach peak levels. So whether you're an everyday worker, whether you're at play or at school, call Dr. P today at 
2870933. That's 7202870933 or look them up at Dr. P at think one number 4u.org. That's think one number 4u.org. He's improved my mental health and he'll do at least the same great work he's done for me for you. And I I want to get into that a little bit because uh we were talking before we began I didn't remember this. You did. Adam Peters Mm -hmm. just hired as the general manager of the Washington Commanders. And ownership has seen fit to follow the traditional model of allowing the GM to hire the head coach. Mm -hmm. From all indications, it's Adam Peters' choice as to who the next coach will be in the nation's capital. You made mention of the fact that Ben Johnson, Mm -hmm. the offensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, who turned down head coaching interviews last year because he had unfinished business, he felt, in Detroit. So so he said, and we'll get to that. He said said that. But, well, there may have been other reasons (laughs) he turned down those interviews. But uh, he apparently is the number one choice. Now he is still working. So there are limitations mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. when he can interview and so on. But I had forgotten this and you remembered when I was down with you in Miami for a week in yep. October of 2017, Adam Gase was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins and the Dolphins because of the hurricane were playing their home opener in October that week. Right. They ended up winning the game. I believe against Tennessee, Mm -hmm. but one of the assistant coaches was Ben Johnson. And I had a pretty good idea of everybody on the coaching staff, but I don't remember Ben Johnson at all. Right. And that didn't surprise me at all. Did I I tell you why? You told me exactly (laughs) why. Yeah. And I want to know why Adam Peters would choose someone who at least back then was so quiet so unassuming that you could be forgiven for not noticing him at all. Yeah. Well, here's two things about the way selections are made, not only in the draft, but in in head coaches and in GMs and EVPs. So um, we're all human beings. We're all influenceable. And I remember when Mike Tannenbaum hired Adam Gase, and I remember asking him after he hired Adam Gase, and then they hired me as a team psychologist down in Miami, I said to Tannenbaum, I said, so what did you see in Gase? And he goes, well, he was the hot candidate. I said, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, but what what does that mean? He's like, well, he was the hot guy. You know, San Francisco interviewed him and San Diego, whatever. And I said, yeah, but what did you – what were the traits? He really couldn't name it, Sandy. Now, Mike Tannenbaum has a law degree from Tulane. He's not a a dumb guy. No. But he didn't quite understand everything he was looking for, and that's pretty common. So with Adam Peters, one of the things I've done over the last several years, and he's permitted me to share this information, is to help him in executive development and help him understand what he's looking for. Now, Ben Johnson back then in 2016, 2017 was a different guy than he is now. He has developed. He has improved his skill set. Reminds me of Mike McDaniel, yeah. the head coach of the Dolphins. Oh, yeah. Also a quiet, <laughs> unassuming guy right. as an assistant coach. And, uh, you know, Miami didn't do as well as it had hoped to do down the stretch, but he's a terrific young coach. Right. But but make no mistake, McDaniels has got a lot of credit as he's come up the hiring tr- 
art hierarchy in yeah. tree because he's got that Yale name behind his back. Yes. You know, and people, oh man, he's smart. He's, he's smart. He's yeah. yeah, you know. And which may or may not yeah. be true. I'm not trying to yeah. discount that, but we've got to be better at understanding looking what we're hiring for. And so when you talk about Adam Peters interviewing Ben Johnson this Friday, now he's looking at a guy that's very method driven. He's a guy who still is fairly quiet. And, um, you know, I, I will I will do my best to have my influence with Peters to say, you know, you need a leader as the head guy. You don't necessarily need a play caller. And that's what a lot of people do is they promote play callers at the coordinator exactly position. Right. And then the, what they, happens, the, the especially guy, offensive play callers. Yeah. And then the head guy gets in position and he doesn't necessarily have the leadership skills, the accountability, structure and discipline to run an organization. See, organizational performance and on the field performance are lockstep with each other, but people don't believe that. They think, no, it's just football. Again, the John Foxes of the world will tell you, oh, it's just football. No, it's not. It's the whole organization's performance in the way they can conduct their hiring, their talent, how they evaluate talent, how they understand that those, you know, ownership, EVP level, GM and head coach all have to be in step with each other or else there's going to be an issue. And so what I know with the Washington Commanders, I do know those two guys really well. And they'll be incongruent with each other. No, incongruence, not right. incongruent. <laughs> but, but what will have to happen is Ben, if he's hired, Ben will need continual development. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. Nobody ever talks about coaches developing, head coaches developing when they're first-time head coaches. It's unbelievable to me that it's never talked about. And and we're talking about organizations here. People will say, well, it's the Denver Broncos. Well, at a core level, they're an organization. And what the Penners need to understand, our organization needs to perform from, from bottom to top. And if you're going to hire a guy like a Ben Johnson, who's great at the X's and O's and play-calling piece, but maybe needs some development in the leadership and communication and understanding the hierarchical position he needs to be put in for organizational performance that's perfectly okay that's because you you don't get a well, you don't draft a quarterback who you just plug him in and he's ready to go you develop him even if he's baker mayfield the first player i was with baker mayfield in cleveland when he was our for our number one pick he wasn't ready to go he had to be developed we have he to played be, right away yeah, and that did. was probably not a great thing because right. he wasn't ready but we need to have more of an open mind in pro sports that we need to develop our front office people's skill set so we don't just hire him and find out they don't have success and then go, oh, well, let's fire him and hire another guy. No, develop where they have their blind spots, and then you can keep them consistently and keep more cohesion in your organization. We have and had actually on our show this week, earlier this week, Sean Rotar and I had a conversation about C.J. Stroud, and Jordan Love, mm. two very different ways of developing quarterbacks. And Green Bay has done it this way before. They did it with Aaron Rodgers. He sat for several years. Brett Favre moved away. Rodgers comes in, and he's pretty darn good right at the beginning. Similar pattern with Jordan Love. Yeah. Sits, Rodgers plays, Rodgers leaves, Love comes in. Isn't great the first half of the season, but 
might have been as good as any quarterback in football. Yeah. The second half of the season was terrific last week. Then on the other hand, you have Houston with C.J. Stroud, raw rookie who didn't test well. We've talked about this yeah. on our uh, podcast before. Didn't test well in the mm. cognitive areas. Thrown in to a situation that wasn't very good. They didn't win a lot of games last year. D'Amico Ryan's the first year head coach. The rookie quarterback gets thrown in. And it looks like he's a 10-year veteran yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, Is it an either-or situation, or can both models of quarterback development work depending on whether the coaches and the front office yeah. understand how to make it work or not? Right. So here's – and I've often talked about the autonomic nervous system – in support of another argument here i'm going to make the argument freestanding because the answer to your question is it doesn't matter what the model is of development for a quarterback what matters for a quarterback if they're on the parasympathetic side of their autonomic nervous system and for the people that don't understand what that is it, the the parasympathetic is the calm side yes heart rate respiration very little muscle tension and clarity of thinking those four elements are calm sympathetic side is all four of those things are elevated heart rates up respirations up muscle tension and narrowing of thinking so you don't think as clearly it comes down to this when a quarterback is learns to be on the parasympathetic side of their autonomic nervous system that's the science of calmness they're going to do everything better they're going to read defenses better they're going to throw the ball better they're going to get along with their teammates better when they're on the sympathetic side they're going to do everything worse and so depending on the individual team if they understand that science they understand how to develop that and keep that in their in their mainstream but most teams don't understand it at that level so they just have he's not ready to play well why is he not ready to play because he's on the sympathetic side and they have to learn how to train someone to get on that parasympathetic side. Some people might take three years. Some people never do. And some people never do. Jamarcus Russell. And exactly. And some people do it right away. <laughs> yeah. CJ Stroud, uh, right from the beginning, uh, has been terrific. Um, there's so much more that, fortunately, we'll have a chance to get to yeah. a week from uh, today. But as always, Dr. Perry, it's been a pleasure. I love doing much. this because I just want to educate people and help them understand there's more to what you're seeing on the football field out there that contributes to these wins and losses. Wellness Wednesdays here on Mile High Sports, a checkup from the neck up with Dr. Rick Perea. I'm Sandy Clough. We'll see you next time.